Welcome back to Cattlegate. This is episode two, and I'm Alex. I'm Katie. In this episode, we will explore the wide history of contamination caused by the Velsicle Chemical Corporation. Later in this episode, we will be interviewing former Alma College professor and member of the Pine River Superfund Citizen Task Force, Ed Lorenz. Our story takes place in St. Louis, Michigan, a small town in the center of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. Like other industrial Michigan cities, St. Louis has faced a lot of adversity through the years. St. Louis was founded in 1853, largely due to the abundance of valuable mineral springs in the area. By 1935, the construction of a chemical plant in St. Louis began along the banks of the Pine River. This plant, which was later known as the Velsicle Chemical Corporation, would become the epicenter for St. Louis's economy, employing much of the community. It's difficult to choose where to start with Velsicle. The chemical company has a vast history of contaminating the local area, bearing the responsibility for numerous health hazards, including two Superfund sites. The city of St. Louis has been left with at least 54 acres of prime real estate where the chemical plant used to sit that is deemed unusable. The PBB disaster aligned directly with the fall of the Velsicle Chemical Corporation. In 1973, the Velsicle Corporation mixed up Firemaster, the, chem- the commercial name for polybrominated biphenyls, and Nutrimaster, a feed supplement, in a shipment to Michigan Farm Bureau. Poorly stored and similarly marked, it is truly shocking that it didn't happen earlier. The seemingly simple mistake led to millions of contaminated Michigan residents and the decimation of thousands of livestock. By 1974, farmers throughout Michigan began noticing similar issues with their cattle, including overgrown hooves, mangy coats, and the aborting of their, cal- of their calves. The state of Michigan initially formed these farmers that nothing was wrong with their cattle, but the farmers knew better. One farmer, by the name of Rick Halbert, who had previous experience in chemistry, began his own tests of the feed. In 1976, unrelated studies revealed mothers around Michigan were breastfeeding traces of PBB to their children. This means that if your grandmother or mother lived in Michigan during the 1970s, there's a strong likelihood that higher levels of PBB or the possibility of genetic defects because of the PBB disaster have been passed down to your generation. For example, a study done in 2001 using data collected from 1976 to 1979 shows girls exposed to relatively high levels of PBB in the womb began menstruating up to a year earlier than those with lower levels. In 1977, 184 St. Louis factory workers participated in a health hazard evaluation. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health found vesicle factory workers had a number of health effects including abnormalities of the liver, kidney, skin, brain, eyes, and adrenal glands. The plant was closed in 1978 due to these numerous health and safety concerns, and it was later buried on the same grounds where it once stood. Again, I'm Katie Cotis, and it's nice to finally actually talk to you. I've heard a lot about you from Dr. Peterson. Oh, All no. very good. Oh, All very okay. good. Um, oh, I didn't so, know he lied. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's a so, great guy. 
<laughs> no, he's awesome to work with. Um, so obviously, um, do you prefer to be called Doctor or Mister or just Ed now that you're uh, retired? I I don't mind whatever works best for your what you're doing. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Any it of doesn't those matter. Fun, <laughs> it's whatever you're comfortable with. Oh, I yeah. You can do Ed. You can do whatever. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. So um, let's start off. So today, obviously, I'm interviewing um, Ed Lorenz, and so a little bit. I want to get a little bit about you. So um, what is actually your specific field? And then how did you come to teach at Alma? <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, well, uh, I was, uh, you know, a, uh, I, as far as academics, I got a PhD in history uh, with an interest in sort of the history of public policy. And um, I ended up coming to Alma in long ago in 1989 uh, because um, I had actually worked a lot in government for about a little over a decade. Um, and um, I, I therefore had applied experience as well as taught, okay? And uh, I went to the University of Chicago for my PhD. Um, and um, I only been in Michigan like two times before coming to Alma um, and knew nothing about, uh, you know, uh, the, the issues that we're real concerned with today. Um, and um, I, I was hired to teach about a half time uh, political science, public policy, and uh, the other half to teach uh, U.S. and Latin American history, and so I was sort of doing that for uh, a year, very peacefully, from 1989 to 1990. And it was in 1990 that I went to a conference on problems in the American economy, and uh, the first morning of the and I was from Alma, and a guy in the middle of the group interrupted, he was a professor at North Carolina State, and said, if we want to study problems in the American economy, we ought to go to this guy's hometown. And I was like, what is he talking about? You know, <laughs> and I, he must have misheard that I'm, he thought I said I was like from Detroit, you know, Saginaw, Flint, something like that. And uh, before he stopped talking, he went into a brief explanation of this chemical company in the town next to Alma, St. Louis, and uh, how they were an example of corporate mismanagement. They could have cared less what they did to the local environment and all this. And I was like, what is this man talking about? I never heard of any of this in my one year in Alma. <laughs> that got me hooked on the work that actually, uh, you know, took a lot of my work over the last, uh, now more than almost uh, 30 plus years. Wow. So you really did not know anything. And I think a lot of people uh, have that same experience coming into this. Even me, like having gone to school here, I never heard. OK, so, yeah, I came back uh, from this conference in Massachusetts. And by the way, it was like a week long event and every time I had a chance, I sat with this guy and talked to him because he knew so much about 
what had happened here, and I had heard nothing about it. The only thing I vaguely remembered, um, I, we weren't living here, but I remember on television news seeing cattle being shot. And I, I, I thought, oh, those people in Michigan are really weird. Why are they shooting their cattle and all that? So I vaguely remembered that. But I had no idea where that had happened and, and what caused it, other than a vague idea there was, you know, this big environmental mistake. So, um, so I came back from there, but he really got me turned on to this is really an important issue. And Alma at the time, we, one of the reasons that I was getting hired, Alma was starting something we then called service learning. Uh, we've gotten a grant from the Kellogg Foundation, and uh, I was on the committee that was trying to set that up. And that summer, we were having meetings about how we were doing, going to do projects and get students involved in service in the community. And, you know, there was this discussion, I remember one day, and people were talking about programs for people who were, you know, poor or hungry, whatever, you know, and, and those were all great ideas. But I guess as we were discussing it, because I was still impressed with what this guy had said, I said, well, aren't there a lot of environmental problems around here? Should we try to do something about that? And an old professor who, you know, died long ago of old age, but a great guy taught in religious studies at the time, um, he agreed with me. You know, he was like, that's a really good idea because we had that environmental contamination on the river and all this. And I was like, well, at least someone agrees with me. This is really important. And so I got involved with a chemistry professor who just retired also, um, Professor Strait, Melissa Strait. And um, Melissa and I were on that committee and we came up with a project to interview people in St. Louis about what had happened. And we did that in like, 1991, 92, and a couple of the things we did, including some of the student work, uh, got published. And um, and Professor Borello, if you know him, who still teaches, uh, you know, uh, Professor Borello got involved, and um, uh, and so we got to do some presentations and this sort of thing. And this is before there was a Pine River Task Force, um, and then in uh, 1997, uh, I got a call from someone I had never knowingly met or anything like that from EPA. Um, and he was what they call the community involvement coordinator for EPA in Chicago. And he was like, uh, you know, I, I've read the stuff you've written with some students about uh, this vesicle contamination. And he said, we have to hold a public meeting because we found the contamination is getting worse in, in the river. And um, I just wanted to know, do you think there are a lot of people in town who are interested if we hold a public meeting? And just based on the fact we had talked to a lot of people and they were very interested and would tell these very passionate stories about what had happened, I guessed and said, yeah, I think if you hold a public meeting, a lot of people will show up. <laughs> and so uh, he, we later joked, I got to know him. Uh, and um, he said, uh, you know, um, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to find a big hall. If you're saying a lot of people are gonna come to hold this meeting. <laughs> so um, he, he scheduled it in October of 97. And I was teaching something that we called public affairs at the time. 
And I, I thought, well, this would be great to take some Alma students to see, you know, sort of the government in action, the EPA coming to town, inviting public comments and this sort of thing. And I, I, I didn't know I was lying to them, but I told them, well, it'll probably be from like seven to eight. It's starting at seven in the evening. It'll probably go for about an hour, you know. Um, and um, I, I took them as a captive audience and a college man. So we all went and we got there and there were no seats. The hall was packed, you know, with people. And people were angry. They, they got mad at the EPA officials for why did you leave us like this? And people brought up health problems they thought were linked to this. And it turned out to be a fascinating meeting, except it went on for like four hours, you know, and our, my poor students were captured in this with our van. We couldn't leave. And so finally, the guy who I had uh, talked with, it was Stuart Hill, uh, Stuart interrupted at about 11 o'clock in the evening and said, you know, this obviously going for a long time. He said, you guys have the right to form an advisory group to EPA. And if you're interested, I, I'm going to pass around a pad, sign up. I'll set up a meeting so that you could try to start one of these groups. And he did that. And we had another meeting in December and we decided to launch the Pine River Task Force. And um, and it's been around ever. We incorporated in January of 98. And uh, ever since then, EPA has been in town doing this cleanup that's, I guess, uh, EPA is is spending like a half billion dollars to clean this up. We still, 25 years later, there's this major work, and we've had the Pine River Group. I was the I was the first chair for four years, and we we had sort of rotation in office. And right now, I'm the vice chair. Um, but we've had you know all sorts of people involved. Professor Borello for a long time was we called him our technical advisor. Uh, Professor Strait, who again just retired a year ago, uh, Professor Strait was the secretary, a former student, a person much like you, was a, uh, well, also was our secretary, uh, Shannon Finnegan. Um, she has an, she produced an interesting video that's over in the college library where she interviewed a lot of the people. She was one of the people who did that. Um, and there have been a whole bunch of other uh of your predecessors uh, who've served in different ways doing, you know, um, computer work for us, for the website, uh, uh, doing all sorts of studies. And so that's how I've gotten involved. And we've just <laughs> been involved year after year. I think none of us thought it was going to go in this long. So, yeah, that's been my involvement. <laughs> Wow, that is like that. That was intense because I mean, you just learned about it, and then all of a sudden, within like that, like those few years, everything just kind of happened, and that's where we are today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know, the cleanup that's going on right now is sort of about as big as any cleanup in the last twenty-five years. I mean, there's been tremendous work. They took out contaminated sediment in the river. Uh, you know, at times you know, digging down almost 20 feet to take out contamination in the, what's the bottom of the river. They dry it out 
and take out sediment on like half the river and then fence it off, uh, build a dam and uh, do the other side of the river. Uh, there's been that. Anyway, it's a huge project. And then the other part that has been really major is dealing with uh, the human health concerns. So uh, it's, I mean, that's like the other half of this. One half is cleaning up the contamination, but the other is finding out, you know, what health problems have resulted from exposures. So a little bit like along those kind of lines, because I know you've also kind of studied uh, the effects of just the plant itself. So um, could you describe if you, because I'm sure you know a lot about this. Um, so like what were some of the conditions like working in the plant? And then also how did that affect the rest of the town of St. Louis? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the conditions apparently were, I mean, the company was very careless. Um, you know, and uh, it, it included things like just dumping waste into the river that were untreated. That led to a lot of the contamination. Um, the emissions came out of their, uh, you know, smokestacks that drifted over town. Uh, and um, in the plant, in the warehouse, um, we have pictures of this. Uh, the uh, cameras were smuggled in and uh, uh, they took pictures of some of it, uh, the conditions and, you know, uh, bags of, of hazardous, potentially hazardous uh, products uh, were falling over, bags were ripped and product was spilled out and all this. And um, this this guy, going back to my exposure to this, it started in 1990, the guy from North Carolina State uh, was an agricultural economist and was really interested in their animal feed supplement that they made. And he had actually come here before they made this big mistake in 1973. And the mistake was they shipped uh, a truckload or more of their fire retardant, which was hazardous to human health, uh, in place of the animal feed supplement that they made. And he came up to study the animal feed supplement. And his the reason he was so interesting to talk to is he had seen it before the, the problem that caused them the shutdown and all this. And he said, his line was, they were an accident waiting to happen. They were, their their facility was so dirty. They didn't keep things uh, separate that had the, you know, like products that were contaminants. They didn't keep those separate from contaminant, from products that were destined for uh, the food chain, which is why we got into the big problem. And so, and workers talked about this um, you know, again, I didn't live here in 1973, but I met a lot of people who worked there. We interviewed a lot of former workers. We interviewed neighbors. Um, and um, you may have heard um, just a few years ago, about a decade ago, EPA had to come back and uh, and literally dug out, excavated uh, the yard, the soil in yards around 90 homes in town that were found to have high levels of DDT, uh, which each year were causing birds to drop dead on people's lawns. 
um, you know, uh, in fact, there was a famous, well, I mean, it got to be known, a, uh, a story in the Detroit News, I think it was, um, a front page story, the, the headline was birds falling from the sky, and it was about St. Louis, you know, um, and, um, you know, so, so there have been all these uh, problems that are indications that the company really did a, a, a was careless in producing their products. So, okay, so you mentioned a little bit about the shutdown of the factory, but um, before we get to that part, um, how vital was the Valsicle Corporation to St. Louis's economy? Because we've talked a lot about in this podcast and in the community presentations about how basically Valsicle closing down, even no matter how bad the environmental or health effects were on the town, that it basically destroyed the town by closing down. So how vital was the corporation to this area in St. Louis's economy? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's a good question. And, and it was very, you know, it was the core business of town. It had, uh, you know, about 400 and some well-paid chemical workers. They were in, um, you know, it was then called the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union. They were well-paid with health benefits and all this. Of course, their health was being threatened by what the company was doing, but that's a different news. Right? So, and the company, you know, paid taxes and supported the schools and, uh, you know, the town government and taxes went into the state government and the federal government uh, in different, you know, forms of taxation. Um, I, I, they, what we have found, and we're still studying some of the consequences of this, the company operated for 42 years in St. Louis. It was founded in 1935, started operating in 1936, and shut down in 1978. In that time period, even though it was a big employer and paid a lot of taxes, paid a lot of wages, in that time period, uh, it never paid as much in taxes and wages, benefits, as we have now spent cleaning it up. Okay, uh, we've been cleaning up this site for more years than the company operated. Uh, you know, it shut down in 78, and now what are we? We're like uh, 45 years later, and we're cleaning up, and the company operated for 42 years. So, um, you know, so it's really, the company is a is a classic study, I and mean, you may know I did a book on, on uh, you know, uh, uh, this. Um, that this corporation was a classic study of, you know, just bad economics um, and um, sort of foolish behavior that we shouldn't allow. Because, you know, and when we talk about the costs, we never even factor in what are the cost and human health consequences of the exposure, because we have no way to calculate those. I mean, what is the, what is the value of, someone who, you know, like we've had people at health screenings, which we still do, you know, we're gonna do one of these at the conference uh, next week, uh, but um, on Saturday, when these are done, people will come with sort of very sad stories. I remember the last one we did before COVID, there was a woman who talked about she had had six miscarriages, never had a child, you know, 
Um, uh, there's a couple who the, the, the husband is an Alma alum who I had as a, a student back in the 90s. Um, and they grew up in the 70s. You know, that's where they were born in the 70s. And so they were everything from breastfed by the, their mothers through, mm. you know, eating food that we didn't know was contaminated. And they've never been able to have a child. You know, one of the things is that people talk a lot about cancers and this, the product, uh, the flame retardant is linked to cancers, but it's also uh, linked to um, especially all sorts of potential birth defects and other costs related, uh, other problems uh, that relate to sort of development uh, of a child. You know, so what is the cost of that? You know, we don't even have any way to a money value. So the company did generate a lot of wages. It paid taxes and it was the core business, the best place to work in St. Louis. But then what are we doing? We, you know, and in some ways it's people like the younger generation who are paying the price. The founder of Velsicol was a very rich Chicagoan. You know, the company was headquartered after it, the local company got bought out by a variety of, it's a complicated story, uh, but um, eventually was part of a Chicago-based chemical company and uh, eventually part of Fruit of the Loom, the underwear company, uh, you know. And uh, those guys never paid the cost of all the cleanup and the health problems people had. So it's bad economics. Definitely. Um, so you got into a little bit about like the birth defects and things like that. And also, obviously, um, basically, they, uh, the different chemicals that um, Velsicol put out could potentially cause sterilization. Um, but what were some of the health effects on, especially like local people or people that worked in the factories or in the factory itself right, and right. moving around the waste for Valsicle too? I mean, that's again, that's a core question that people in town raised, like that meeting I mentioned that happened back in 1997 that went on for four hours. Most of the reasons most of the questions dealt with human health problems that people thought were the fault of the exposures from the company. Um, you know, the problem with this, it's so hard to determine what actual health problem an individual person, like one of us, what is the consequence of the exposures? We have to look at all the population. We have to look at patterns because, you know, uh, maybe I worked also at another chemical plant, or maybe I worked at somewhere else that produced something that was hazardous. So what cause, even if I have a health problem, it's hard to pin it down on my work at, say, Velsicol for five years or something like that, you know. So we, we have to do long-term studies. We do have a long-term uh, follow-up study of thousands of people exposed that focused actually on the farm families who, uh, you know, this was shipped 
the the flame retardant was shipped to an animal feed supply facility mixed with animal feed and distributed across Michigan. Um, and um, the result was that all sorts of farmers, hundreds of farmer farm families were exposed first, and then of course it got into the food of everybody. So uh, in the state, um, but um, you know they they are the primary. Uh, people, the farm families are the primary ones in this long-term study since the 70s. They've been followed up and they seem to have higher rates of, of, of several cancers. They have several, um, there, there seems to be problems of, um, you know, fertility development of kids. One of the products out at the site, which is causes a lot of the uh, complex cleanup that we're going through uh, that was apparently used in producing some of their other products. So it wasn't sold as a named product, but it was used and is is widely present at one part of the site. Um, uh, uh, Dichlorobromoprotein, propene, I think I'm saying it right, DDCP is what they, they use as the, as the, uh, the initials for it. DDCP is a male sterilant at any detectable level. So, uh, uh, and it probably does developmental problems to women as well, but it definitely is known, for example, it would sterilize a male, a man. So a chemical worker, if they were exposed to this, would not have kids, you know? Um, and so there, there are issues like that. We know how bad some of the chemicals are from tests, um, and then we have these patterns of people, but it's so hard to pin down whether, you know, if I have uh, a digestive system cancer, which has been linked to that, say, if, for example, I had that and I worked at the plant, we still don't know if I got it because of my plant work. You have to look at the pattern of the entire population. So it's a little hard to pin down. So um, also going off of uh, just like the whole um, different kind of health effects, I mean, there's probably no way that we could ever really know what this disaster did, what the plant did to the town to, I mean, to honestly, to all of Michigan at this point, correct? <laughs> right, right. I, I, you know, and, and of course, you know, you didn't have to just work there. It got into the river, you know, fish in the river were some of the most contaminated that they have ever found in the country, you know, with uh, uh, pesticides like DDT and this sort of thing. And and we know some people catch these uh, even after, even though there's a, a, what they call a fishing ban, but there's no penalty for catching and eating a fish. Uh, you know, there's not like you're not arrested or charged with, oh, you caught a fish out of the Pine River. You're just advised not to catch fish out of the Pine River. And we have seen people who, uh, when we've been out doing work related to this, we've seen people fishing. We try to be polite and inform them, you know, this is really dangerous. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, people can be exposed that way. And then especially in the early 70s, we, we know that about eight and a half million people in Michigan were exposed. I mean, when we do random tests to people, PPB will, has shown up. Um, there's, a, there's a fairly new study 
um, that came out, I guess, in late 2000, uh, 2020 and 2021, um, that has found uh, some of the highest rates found in the general population in the state in uh, women in Detroit. And there's no reason to think they wouldn't be that way because um, the food was shipped all over the state. It was probably found in, it would probably be found in people in, you know, any community in the state. If you were alive in 1973, and if you're a kid or grandkid of someone who was alive then in Michigan, there's likelihood that it's in some ways gotten into you. That's that's the, uh, uh, the we've been doing all sorts, there's been all sorts of research on the intergenerational impacts of contaminants like this. So as we kind of get close to time here, because I've noticed there, and this is going to be a very good interview though for the podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, so as we're getting close to time, um, being so not being from around the area and going to school, going to grad school in Chicago and that, and then then moving here to teach, how has like this affected you being now technically what we'd consider a local? <laughs> yeah. Um well, I mean, first of all, it is, it has, you know, and it's it's not to say I use this uh, just as a project I could use in class because it got way beyond that. But, um, you know, I I mean, this is in a, in many ways, a terrible way. This is a great resource for places like Alma College and other, uh, you know, it should be for the public schools and other institutions in the region. Uh, I know we, we've done a podcast with Professor Freemian from uh, Central Michigan University. Uh, and this is just a resource that is so useful if we study it. You know, the, the danger, as with so much history, since I really teach history, is, uh, I, you know, so much of, there's so, such a danger of forgetting the past. And thinking, well, what could it teach us? You know, what, what, what did I have to learn? I mean, back then they didn't have laptops, they didn't have an iPhone, you know, or anything. What what good is learning about the Pine River and Belsicol, Michigan Chemical, and all that? And and the the fact is, it's very important because we still are doing things like this. Um, you know, we invent new products. There, the companies sold. Um, because they got so bad, it's such a bad name. They sold the trade name for their flame retardant to another chemical company, and it's still being made and sold. The, the, the trade name was Firemaster. You can still go out and find Firemaster, um, and uh, it's not made by in St. Louis by the same company, but the company profited from selling this name, you know, and and the formula and uh, a facility that produced the raw material for it, it was down in Arkansas. Uh, and so studying the history, as with so many problems in life, uh, history is really helpful. I, and I know it's sort of promoting the field I, I like, but I, and I think you may be studying, but history is priceless in avoiding you know, future mistakes like the one we had. And humans have a terrible tendency, it's sort of life, but of 
of doing the same thing again and again and again. So, you know, you can make a lot of money off of doing something irresponsible and not cleaning up your mess. And basically, <laughs> that's the story of Elsegal. They produced something, they made a lot of money, and one of the reasons they made so much money is they didn't bother with, oh, what are we going to do with the waste from this? You know, what are we going to do about the health of the workers who are helping us get all this money? What are we going to do about our neighbors across the street who just live here? You know, um, and and so there's a lot to learn. We we have that if people are interested, they go on the Pine River website. One sub part of that are lessons, and we've reduced it to three. I won't go over those. People can go on the website and look at them. And you could say they're four, they're two, they're eight, you know, whatever you want to say as the lessons. But to make it simple, we ended up with three. And I think it would help. People could look at that. Again, there's a if you just put in Pine River Superfund, the website will pop up. And uh, if you go to things like lessons, I think it shows why this is so important. Um, it helps us all learn and maybe avoid doing stupid things in the future. <laughs> so um, kind of to wrap up here, do you feel like um, Felsicle and the following aftermath is basically a anomaly for America throughout the 19th century in terms of industrialization and manufacturing? <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's not that every company made contamination is that every company did irresponsible things it's certainly not the case but um i think this is an example of one type of behavior that there are others who follow and i suspect we have a bunch that are doing it right today you know so um and one of the people we cite on the website not to not to reveal all the information our lessons is um uh, and he was an inspiration for one of the, the scientists, a great individual who was an expert on environmental health, a guy named Irving Selikoff, who was one of the ones who came here in the 70s to try to help out, figure out how to respond to this. He, I, he was old at the time, he's, he's, he's since died, but Dr. Selikoff, um, and some others um, who have been involved, some of them have been involved in their site as well as Dr. Selikoff, uh, created something called the Collegium Ramazzini. And it's named for a great Italian um, physician uh, of the uh, late 17th century, okay, the 1600s and early 1700s. Uh, Dr. Ramazzini was a pioneer in something called the precautionary principle. And um, and you'll see, uh, if people go to the website, they can read about Dr. Ramazzini. There are annual meetings uh, at the in uh, outside of Bologna, Italy, of the Ramazzini Collegium. And a number of people who've worked on our site have, have are, are involved in those meetings. And it's a global effort to talk about how to avoid these problems in the future. And it's a challenge we face around the world, but it's great if you study it. And it's great if you, you know, this is why we need historians um, and, and brilliant physicians. Um, Dr. Selikoff was sort of both. He knew about uh, medicine, but he also knew our history and knew 
we did irresponsible things in the 1600s, and that's what inspired Dr. Uh, uh, Ramazzini, this brilliant man. I mean, just a, a remarkable individual from the, the late Italian Renaissance who worked on some of these same issues. So we need to learn those things so that we don't repeat the mistakes. Well, um, as we're hitting about the 40 minute mark, I would like to say thank you so much for uh, allowing us to interview, interview you, especially on short notice. So um, it definitely helps uh, the podcast getting out and staying on track, sort of. So um, I definitely appreciate that. Um, well, thank and you for doing this, all of the podcasts <laughs> related to this. Thank you so much.